This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 11th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. How we deal with failure can tell us a lot about how likely we are to succeed. Megan McArdle writes in her new book, The Upside of Down, that failure has the ability to teach us as individuals and groups. And the painful lessons from failures big and small are perhaps the most valuable lessons we can learn. We spoke last week. The idea is basically beyond creative destruction. I mean, we all know creative destruction in the process by which companies and even people and ideas in a capitalist society are replaced by something newer and even better. Uh, It's maybe bad for that company, but great for society as a whole. And that is really important. You know, I, I get into that, dive into that straight in early chapters of my book because it's it's such an important concept. But it's not just enough to let things fail. It is not enough to say, okay, we're going to let this company go to business. We're going to let this individual lose their job rather than trying to say, as France might, buy up a big industrial concern and keep it all going exactly the way it was. It's, a, it's great that America doesn't do that. But it also matters a lot what happens after something has failed. And we tend to give that short shrift. We tend to forget about all of the institutions and the cultural norms and even the personal habits that enable us to pick ourselves up after something has gone wrong and move on to something better rather than kind of ending up chained to our disastrous past. Now, you're talking about individuals, but a lot of that is true for large companies as well. No, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what happens to, say, a company that has fallen on hard times and can't pay its bills in Europe, you know, the normal course is liquidation, is that you sell off the assets, you try to preserve whatever you can, the workforce is basically let go, and uh, the creditors are paid out of out of whatever's left over. But in America, we innovated something, which a lot of companies, by the way, are now trying to copy what we do because it's, it's so great. Uh, what we did was we said, you know what, we're going to try as much as we can to keep those companies going. Instead of liquidating and just selling everything off, sell off the planes of an airline or, or what have you, we do a reorganization. We're going to try, we're going to go in and we're going to say, first of all, Creditors have to get as, at least as much as they would out of a liquidation from this going concern. So it's not unfair to creditors. It's great for creditors, but it's great for the company. It's great for the workers. It's great for the stockholders tend to get wiped out. But even you know the creditors often end up with stock in the new corporation. And what you do is you try to preserve that firm as a going concern without the things that made it impossible for them to succeed before. So we get rid of some of the old debt. If you have labor contracts that just make it impossible to operate at a profit, you write those down. Uh, Bankruptcy judges have enormous latitude to wipe out old obligations so that the new company going forward can actually be profitable. And and so what you have is instead of littering the the company with the waste of of dead firms, you have live growing organizations again. And a lot of companies have gone through bankruptcy and and come out on the other side, you know, stronger and better and, and gone on to further success. Now, the World Bank puts out the doing business index. And one of the things they track is the ability to close a business. It is amazing. So my favorite example of this is in Iraq. Uh, in Iraq, it's basically impossible to close a business. Um, the the amount of paperwork required, the amount of approvals required, um, and so instead, what you see in Iraq is that companies will just wait until payday, and then the night before, the owners of the company shut it down, grab whatever mobile assets they can, and flee to Jordan. 
I'm not making this up. When I when I interviewed, I uh, did a story a few years ago um, on Iraq's economy, and this is really common because there's no way for them to get approval to shut down, and so instead they stiff the workers and and flee. And obviously, this is bad for everyone. The workers don't get paid. The company is now uh, an asset that's not being used, and especially in a place like Iraq, it, no one else picks up the company and, and tries to keep operating it. Um, whereas if instead you had tried to come to some agreement that could keep the company going, if you made it easy to shut down so that either you can reorganize or at least <laughs> we try to do a fair, as fair as possible, an allocation of what's left over, obviously uh, everyone would be better off, but it's just not possible. Now, you talk a little bit about uh, the U.S. bankruptcy system and you refer to it several times as great, uh, something that the rest of the world you think should emulate. And of course, I was uh, ready to read this chapter because you started with the example of uh, somebody that we both like, Dave Ramsey of Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, Dave Ramsey is one of my favorite. Uh, he is certainly my favorite, uh, one of my favorite radio hosts. He is an amazing uh, life story. He actually, he was uh, a big real estate investor in the 1980s and he went bankrupt when he was just 26. And he describes the process of he finally declared bankruptcy when the bailiffs were basically just getting ready to show up at his house and take all his furniture. He had a wife and two small kids at home. And he ended up having to declare bankruptcy. And he eventually actually paid all of the money back. It took him years, but he, he worked his way back into it. But in that moment of crisis, having shed his debts, he turned his life around and he ended up as a financial counselor who has an amazing radio show where he teaches people how to stay out of bankruptcy. Um, and it's a fantastic story and I think a testament to how great the bankruptcy system is. Um, you know, It's something you want to stay out of if you can. But if you can't, if you're really at that moment where you've, you've just got to get rid of your debts because otherwise you're, you're going to be sort of a slave to them forever, um, it's an amazing system for helping people put those debts behind them and get back on their feet. And what's actually interesting is the U.S. is a little bit of a natural lab to test this because our bankruptcy code is federal. It's actually in the Constitution that the, the federal government has the right to establish a bankruptcy code. But the exemptions are local. So each state sets how much of your house you can shield, how much can you can you shield a car, can you what's the value of any workman's tools that you're allowed to protect from your creditors. And so that gives us a little natural experiment because it really varies a lot um, from anything like you know three thousand to twenty five thousand dollars in some states to in Florida and Texas you can if you have a five million dollar home you can protect that from creditors and that kind of gulls people but if you look at uh, different states the states that have more generous exemptions have higher rates of entrepreneurship and the reason for that is twofold first of all it means that people are more willing to take that risk. If you know that you can't lose your house and leave your children and your wife out in the cold, it's a lot easier to take that fairly risky step of, of starting a, a small business. But the other thing it does is if you've started a small business and it has gone wrong, then you have the ability to move on, to maybe start another small business after you've gotten back on your feet. And one of the people I talked to in the book is a Danish entrepreneur who had a setback and who has spent the last 10 years desperately trying to get out of the debt that he incurred when he had to fire a bunch of employees back in 2001. And he is still struggling with that. And that, that tells you how powerful bankruptcy can be for freeing people to go on and maybe take that second or third risk, not just the first. Now, creditors, for what should seem to be obvious reasons, don't like this. There was a reform in 
2005. And uh, what did that do? Well, we had a big uh, reform in 2005, which goes by the uh, the really unlovely uh, moniker of back CPA. <laughs> um, and it is it was basically the argument was people the number of bankruptcies declared every year was going up. And the the argument that the banks made and and a fair number of analysts on that side made, was that what you're getting is a culture of bankruptcy. You're getting, as more people declare bankruptcy, it normalizes a little bit, right? If you're the only one you know to declare bankruptcy, then it, first of all, it seems scary. You don't know anything about it, and you're ashamed of it. On the other hand, if you know 10 of your friends have declared bankruptcy, then it probably feels easier to shed your debts. And what they were saying is people are behaving more strategically. They're running up debt that they know they can't pay, and then when they get to that point, they're declaring bankruptcy, and we need to tighten this up. I actually reported on this uh, for The Economist at the time, and I ended up concluding that this was a bad idea for two reasons. Um, some of the reforms were OK. I, you know, most laws always have at least one thing in it that you say, OK, well, that was, that was an OK idea. And in, in this case, there were some abuses, like the one OJ Simpson had used the, uh, the homestead loophole, bought a big house in Florida, and then shielded all of his assets from uh, people who had won uh, verdicts against him in the civil suit over his, wife, his ex-wife's death. Um, and the, the, the law closed that loophole. And there were some other things like that in it. But basically, look, if this is really a problem, if what we're really seeing is a lot of strategic behavior, what's the first policy outcome that you would look for? What was the first macroeconomic problem where you would look to see this, sh- see this show up is you would expect credit to be contracting, right? You would, you would look and say, OK, well, now banks aren't going to want to lend nearly as much because they're too worried about losing it. Well, that is the opposite of what was happening in 2005, right? Credit was expanding massively. And so it didn't look to me like there was a big public policy problem that we needed to solve. Instead, this just looked like a way to go in, um, take people who had borrowed debt under one circumstance and change the rules so that it was, it was then harder to, to get out to shed that debt um, after the rule change. And you know, ultimately, it hasn't had nearly as much effect as either the people who opposed it or the people who supported it, I think, thought it would. It has definitely lowered the rate of bankruptcy somewhat. And to that extent, I think that they were right that um, probably there was some strategic abuse of the system and people aren't doing that as much. On the other hand, um, you always have to think about what's the effect on people who want to start a small business? What's the effect of people who want to take a risk and go out and do something well, you know, we're looking at declining rates of entrepreneurship in this country right now. And to me, that is a much bigger crisis than any problem we might have been having with, with people um, strategically looking at, at bankruptcy. And because the amazing thing is, honestly, most people who could benefit from bankruptcy don't use it. There's still a very strong stigma against declaring bankruptcy in this, in this country. And I actually think we've struck a really great balance which is bankruptcy is actually really easy. You go into bankruptcy court and you think it's going to be all sobbing mothers and this terrible. But I spent a week in Memphis's bankruptcy courts. It's pretty much like going to traffic court. It's, it's uh, surprisingly easy to do. No one yells at you. No one embarrasses you over why you can't pay your bills. You go in and you say, look, I can't pay my bills. And they say, OK, well, let's see what, what we can do here. Um, but most people don't do it because they're ashamed. And I actually think that's healthy is that the people who really need it, the people who are at the end of the rope, the bailiffs are about to show up and throw you and your wife and your small kids out of your house, they still use it. But the people who don't need it, the people who can manage to struggle on to pay their bills mostly do. We've got this amazing balance in this country 
And I don't think we, we needed to step in and, and, and shake it up. At some point, and at whatever rules we set for people's ability to file for bankruptcy, at some, at whatever those rules are, they're going to be arbitrary in terms of limits and tolerances and things. But at some point, if somebody's going to loan you money, they need to take some responsibility for your, your ultimate inability to pay it back. Yes. I mean, it's true. You probably have the best knowledge of whether you can pay that money back. Um, but banks who lend money to people who are very unlikely to be able to pay it back, which at the height of the subprime crisis was simply the case. I mean, you looked at um, both sides have tried to paint this as a morality play. Oh, people borrowed money and they were irresponsible and banks lent money and they were irresponsible. And it's true. Both sides were stupid. I mean, you looked at uh, a gardener who made $40,000 a year who bought a, a $500,000 house. And both sides should have known that there was no way that this person was going to be able to pay the loan. And in fact, both sides kind of did. You went, you went looking for heroes in this. You went looking for victims of people who'd been lent money and they should have known. They, there was no way they could have known. And then you talk to them and you find out that, yes, they were kind of aware that they couldn't really make these payments. But what they thought was that the, the, the housing market would improve further and they'd be able to repay, they'd be able to refinance. And that's what the banks thought too. Everyone made the same dumb bet. And yes, they shouldn't have made the bet. It was very bad for our economy. And both sides deserve some level of, hey, finger wagging for having done that. Um, but ultimately, most of us make some dumb bets in our life. And you, at some point, you have to say, OK, well, let's learn from that. But yelling at you is probably not going to yell at people a little bit. But then you say, OK, well, that happened. We can't go back and fix it. So how do we move on? And bankruptcy is actually it's a very efficient way for saying, we're not going to see if we can somehow sweat out an extra $3,000 from you over the next 10 years, because it's going to tie everyone up. It's not worth it, right? It's not worth it for either side. And this was one of the interesting things, is that during the, uh, the bankruptcy reform, one of the things that they put in was a ban on refiling. If you had what's known as a Chapter 13, which is a payment plan bankruptcy, uh, and it failed, there was a limit on, on your ability to refile it. And bankruptcy judges have basically read that out of the law. They're not enforcing it. And I talked to a bankruptcy judge. They do enforce it if it's clearly abusive, right? If, if you're refiling for the third or fourth time, you would better have a good reason that you can tell the judge that this time's going to be different. But they're not. It was supposed to be a really hard limit. And so I talked to one of the judges and she said, I'm not enforcing it because no one's complaining. The companies would rather have someone in a payment plan however imperfect, where the bankruptcy trustee is taking this money and sending them a check every month, then to have to hound this person and go file a garnishment order and, and so forth, the system is basically better than, than any of the alternatives. They're happy that the trustee is taking on the burden of doing the collection and sending them a check. And so, you know, to go back to the 2005 reform, we were fixing problems that we don't actually seem to have had. You also talk a lot about personal failure, aside from the big one, which is uh, being uh, pushed into bankruptcy. But uh, your book is The Upside of Down. So what's the upside of these little or perhaps large failures that you and I as as individuals might find ourselves in? Well, you know, one that I really like that I, I talk about in the book is uh, – my own personal story. After business school, I had a job. Uh, I came out of business school in 2001, having somewhat idiotically accepted a, a job with a 
technology management consulting firm, which then promptly, they strung us along for six months and then they just fired my whole associate class. None of us ever started. It wasn't, we didn't work. They just kept pushing back our start date and eventually they, they were like, so how about never? <laughs> Does never work for you? Um, and so I was back on the job market and it took me a year and a half to find a permanent job. And what I did, um, it was a job at The Economist uh, on their web editing side. And I was really desperate by this time. Um, it was to the point where uh, I, I went into a I went into a, an event for classmates from business school, and I couldn't afford to buy a drink because I didn't have much money. And so I just sort of wandered around and said hi to people, and drank water. And a guy I didn't know very well um, came up to me after I'd been there for about an hour and a half, talking to all of my classmates who had jobs, and I was feeling very badly about myself. And he said, "How are you?" And I looked at him and I said, "I'm perilously close to despair." And he just stared at me and then sidled away as if he was afraid to turn his back on me. Um, and about a month after that, I'd interviewed for this job with The Economist and then heard nothing. And I added that to the long list of people who were not going to hire me. I'd sent out 1,400 resumes and I'd gotten one response from a woman in Wyoming who pointed out that I didn't live in Wyoming and also didn't seem to be qualified for the job that I'd applied for. And uh, so... Antony Gottlieb from The Economist calls me and says, hello, this is Antony Gottlieb from The Economist. And I said, oh, hi, how are you? And he said, well, actually, I've called to offer you the job. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and he's a very reserved man. He was somewhat taken aback. And uh, he said, oh, well, that's fine. And we, you know, thinking of paying you $40,000 a year. And I was like, you're going to pay me? And then I realized I sounded like an idiot. And so I said, $40,000, that sounds fine. And we arranged and I got off the phone. And I, I called uh, my then boyfriend and I said, I got a job. And then I burst into tears. And it totally surprised me. I had not expected to cry when I told him this. It was the only time aside from my wedding day that I've ever cried from happiness in my life. I'm not really a teary person. And it was a great job. And it ended up with me you know, 10, 12 years later, 10, 11 years later, Working uh, for Bloomberg, I'm very happy. I've had an amazing career so far. Um, but I look back on that and I thought, you know, if it hadn't been for the fact that I'd, I'd been looking for a job for so long, I don't think I would have had the courage to take that job. Not because it wasn't. I wanted that job more than anything. And if you'd asked me what job would you like to do more than anything in the world, um, you know, working on in, in journalism at The Economist would have been very high on the list. But it paid a third of what I'd been expecting to get as a management consultant. I had almost $100,000 in student loans. It was an enormous financial risk, and it was really difficult. I spent several years you know, eating things like ramen and cheese doodle surprise, where the surprise is that you're 30 years old and you're still eating ramen and cheese doodles for dinner. Um, and it was a good choice, but it was a choice. It was a risky choice, and it, was, it would have been hard to do if I'd had a secure position. And you know, it really is true that freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, that in these moments of crisis when you're really up against the wall, you often find some solution that would have seemed too risky or too scary or too daring when you were in some more secure place, and they turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to you. I mean, 
Colonel Sanders is my other favorite story. Um, he was a serial failure. I mean, his wife at one point left him because he, she was so tired of his losing jobs and doing get-rich-quick schemes and never getting it together. Finally, in his 40s, he manages to start a successful cafe. And then the state of Kentucky builds a new throughway, and it doesn't go by his cafe, and suddenly all of his revenue disappears. And most people, he was 65 years old when this happened. And most people would have just said, well, I'm going to move in with my daughter and be sad, and then I'm going to wait to die, right? Not him. He picks up, takes a pressure cooker and some chickens, and he goes on the road and just pounding conventions and going door to door at restaurants saying, I want, here is my, try my fried chicken, pay me five cents a chicken to say, to sell this. He finally finds a guy in Utah who's willing to do this. And when they're painting the, the new sign on the window, they said, well, what should we call it? And he said, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And that, you know, the rest is history. And he didn't do this because he had some high destiny to become the world's greatest fried chicken purveyor. He did this because he was desperate and he had failed. Um, but it was, had this not happened, he would have been still, you know, would have died as the proprietor of a modestly successful roadside cafe in Kentucky in a town that you've never heard of. So part of uh, what I read in your book is the the perils of being comfortable. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that safety is, uh, I guess, in a lot of ways, a problem. Safety is highly overrated because it's never really as safe as you think it is. You know, and one of the, the concepts that I talk about is something orienteers call bending the map. And it's when you are out in the wilderness and you're lost and you start saying to yourself, hmm, well, I don't recognize this place, but maybe this river is actually that river over here on the map. Maybe I'm over here. And you start convincing yourself that a map that doesn't really look much like where you are must be where you are because the alternative is that you have no idea where you are, right? And it feels better. It feels much safer um, to be in that place than it does to just say, oh, I have no idea where I am. I'm completely lost. But the problem is if you think you know where you're going and you don't, you just get yourself more lost, right? Because you go off in some direction. You have no idea where you're going. It is much safer to say, I don't know where I am. I had better act as if I don't know where I am and I am lost. But it's very hard to get people to do. And that is sort of generally true. We have this phenomenal drive for safety. But what you end up with is a system where um, because you feel so safe, you take you're actually taking big risks that you shouldn't be taking. And so, you know, one of the examples I like to give is um, uh, antibiotics, is that antibiotics are great, don't get me wrong. I, I'm 100% in favor of antibiotics. I hope we get more of them. But the risk of antibiotics is that because you always have this fail-safe mechanism, doctors and patients don't take, and nurses and hospital workers do not take uh, as proper precautions. They take more risks than they should be because it's very hard. You always, so my mother's, and just as I went on book leave, my mother's appendix burst. And I watched all of these people come into a room not washing their hands. And there's the first thing is follow proper sanitary procedure every single time when you're dealing with, especially with a patient who's almost 70 um, because your immune system sadly works less well. And they put her on this drug called Tigacil, which I, I talked to a couple of drug researchers about it. And one of them was like, oh, my God, Tigacil's a monster, kills everything. She'll be fine. And she was fine. But the fact that they exist means that people are careless about washing their hands. And what you want is a situation where we have the backup. But first, you wash your hands because drugs have side effects. And the more you use antibiotics, the less useful they are because we get antibiotic resistance. 
Um, but we don't because we feel we have this margin of safety. Instead, we take too many risks um, up front. We take unsafe risks, not calculated, I'm going to try something new, but dumb, I'm just not going to wash my hands because it makes my hands chap and I don't feel like it. What are the couple of lines if somebody is not going to read your book? And of course, they absolutely should purchase it at its full list retail price. <laughs> uh, what are the few lines that you would give to somebody to just say, act this way, behave this way, think this way? So I would say three things. And the first is to hedge your net psychic wealth. So when you're looking forward, don't bet any, don't put all your eggs on one basket and then watch that basket. Think about, okay, well, I have plan A and then plan B, plan C, plan D. Um, and the example I gave in the book is that when my husband and I bought our house, we said, okay, well, what if we both lost our jobs and had to take jobs that paid half as much? That's how much house we can afford, not how much their bank is willing to lend us. Um, second thing is when a failure has happened, the most important to think is I am not a failure. I am someone who has failed. And this sounds very hippy-dippy and motivational, but it's a really important distinction. Failure is what happens when you're doing something you don't know how to do, right? And often it's because no one's ever done it before. And then sometimes it's just because there are things you can only do by trying. You don't learn to play tennis by developing an elaborate theory of tennis physics. You learn to play tennis by hitting a ball over and over, and the first thousand times you hit it, it doesn't go anywhere near where you want it to go. Um, and so when something goes wrong, instead of beating yourself up for having been stupid or taking too many risks or et cetera, what you say to yourself is, well, clearly I didn't know how to do that. What have I learned that I didn't know before? How do I go and do something else? And this is really key because so much of what happens, you see this with people in personal finance, when they're in really deep trouble, they stop opening their bills. And it's not like that makes the bills go away, but they don't want to confront it. It makes them feel too, too ashamed. And instead of, if you instead said, well, I've obviously gotten myself into trouble because I, I didn't know how to manage my finances properly, I could go learn how to manage my finances properly. It's a much better place to be in than the place that most people end up in, which is I'm desperate and I'm just going to ignore the problem and hope it goes away. Um, the third thing is that, you know, and this goes back a little bit to hedging your net psychic wealth, is diversify your efforts to get out. Do anything. I tell this to, I have so many people writing into me now who say, I've lost my job, what do I do? And luckily I can say, I have been there. <laughs> Here is what you do. Um, and it, it's not specific advice because I don't think very many other people are going to start a blog, go work for The Economist, and then end up at Bloomberg. But it's general advice, which is that the people that I watched from my business school class who got out of that were the people who just kept moving. And it almost doesn't matter. Go work at Walmart. Go volunteer. Go to church. Be somewhere that's not in your house. The, one of the single biggest predictors for whether you will find another job and how quickly is just how much job-seeking activity that you do. And it doesn't even matter what the activity is. Whatever you're doing is creating an opportunity for something to happen. And so be moving, be trying things, be experimenting in some way, because eventually, eventually you are going to find something. But the only way that you're going to find something is if you are out looking. It's not in your house. Whatever it is, it's not in your house. It's not in your bedroom. It's somewhere out there. And the way that you find it is to look for it. Megan McArdle is author of the new book, The Upside of Down. You can subscribe to this and other Cato podcasts at iTunes and at our website, cato.org.